Welcome to Hallowed, Exploring the Lives of the Saints, Episode 7, By This Sign. I'm your host, Tom Thorne, and in this podcast, I'll be taking you on a journey through the lives, adventures, trials, and triumphs of the great heroes of the Christian faith. Today, we'll be talking about a saint who, perhaps more than any other woman of her time, shaped the history of the church down to the present day. The mother, empress, and archaeologist, St. Helena. According to tradition, Helena was born in the 240s in the Anatolian city of Drepanon, not far from Istanbul in modern-day Turkey. Long time, no see. Except that she was born in poverty and raised as a pagan, we know little of her life before the year 270, when she married a man named Constantius. If you remember back to our first episode on St. George, you may recall that the 3rd century was a chaotic time for the Roman Empire. A series of military dictators were piecing the empire back together after decades of civil war, and the best of them, Aurelian, chose Constantius to be his right-hand man. Aurelian and Constantius were pagans, but unlike many others of their day, they were not hostile to Christianity. Aurelian himself was, in fact, a monotheist, a worshipper of one god, named Sol Invictus, the unconquered sun, and he treated the Christian church with dignity at a time when most pagans would have persecuted her. The Christians, for their part, returned his respect, and it says a lot about it. The Christians, for their part, returned his respect, and it says a lot about Aurelian's reputation that he was the first emperor to be invited by churchmen to settle an internal disputes among Christians. His lieutenant, Constantius, would follow Aurelian's lead in showing toleration to the church, even when his later superiors would condemn the faith. Helena traveled with her husband Constantius on his military campaigns throughout Aurelian's reign, as the emperor won back rebellious provinces and defended the frontier against Germanic barbarians, who were just beginning the invasions of Roman territory that would eventually bring down the empire two centuries later. For his remarkable success in putting Rome back together, Aurelian would go down in history as the Restitutor Orbis, the Restorer of the World. But while the Emperor was achieving his great victories with no small help from Constantius, Helena was about to restore the world in an altogether different way, by having a baby. You may have already guessed that the baby's name was Constantine. Born around the year 272 in the province of Moesia, that's modern-day Serbia, the boy was a consummate army brat 
growing up in military camps as his parents moved around on campaign. We can only imagine the lessons he learned. Lessons in leadership and command from his father, of course, which would serve him well in this world. But he must also have learned lessons in good moral character from his mother, which would come back to haunt him later in his troubled life. But Helena's family life was not destined to last. It came to an abrupt end in 288 or 289, when her husband was forced to abandon her. What brought about this dramatic turn? In a word, politics. Much had changed in Roman politics since the marriage of Constantius and Helena. The Emperor Aurelian was dead, assassinated like so many other men of the 3rd century, and after a decade of twists, turns, and schemes, a new ruler had emerged to bind the Empire together. Diocletian. If you'd like to hear more about this charming character, you can go back and re-listen to episode 1 on St. George. Diocletian, as you'll know already, was no friend of Christianity. But he wasn't a stupid man by any means. He knew talent when he saw it, and he saw it in Constantius. Appointing his most trusted ally, a thuggish general named Maximian, to rule the western half of the empire while he himself ruled the east, Diocletian placed Constantius in charge of the remote and wild province of Britain. It was a hard job, and Constantius was undoubtedly the right man for it. But the price of this arrangement was that Constantius would have to give up his wife and marry the daughter of Maximian, his new boss in the Western Empire. We can't know exactly how Constantius felt about this bargain. I find it hard not to imagine him as conflicted. After all, he'd been married to Helena for almost 20 years by this point, and she was the mother of his only child. But he knew that if he refused the offer, he might make enemies of Maximian and Diocletian, the two most powerful men in the Empire, likely placing himself and his family in danger. In the end, Constantius relented. In 288 or 289, he divorced Helena and married Maximian's daughter. From our point of view, it may seem clear that he made the wrong choice, but that doesn't mean it was an easy one. Constantine was a teenager, probably 16 or 17, when his parents divorced. He was old enough to understand what was happening, however he may have felt about it, but he wasn't too old to be used as a hostage to ensure his father's good behavior. When Constantius packed up to move to Britain, young Constantine was sent east to live under the watchful gaze of the Emperor Diocletian himself. He took his mother, Helena, with him. It can't have been an enjoyable life for her, for all its worldly comforts, as she knew that any mistake by her estranged husband, Constantius, would mean the end of herself and her son. 
We don't hear much from Helena during this time, as Constantine learned the ways of politics and began to play the game for himself. I'll spare you the details of his rise to power. It's an intriguing story, but long and complicated. Suffice it to say that by the year 312, after more than two decades of climbing the ranks of the military, Constantine had become one of the great men of the Empire. By this time, his father, Constantius, had passed away, along with Maximian, warlord of the West, and the Emperor Diocletian had retired to become, believe it or not, a cabbage farmer. Really, I'm not joking. The man who had rebuilt Rome as a bureaucratic despotism, established the rule of god-emperors and overseen the great persecution that martyred so many Christians, including St. George. That man, Diocletian, died on his villa growing cabbages. When asked, late in life, if he might return to running the empire, Diocletian famously said, If you could come here and see the splendid cabbages I've grown with my own hands, then you would not ask such a thing of me. No, the age of Diocletian and his power-sharing colleagues was over. A new generation was taking power in Rome, a generation of men who would not be content with dividing the empire amongst themselves, but only with absolute rule over the whole realm. The leading contender in this race to the top was Constantine. His greatest rival? Another young man named Maxentius, the son of that general Maximian who had pressured Constantine's parents to divorce all those years ago. By the spring of 312, the rivalry between Constantine and Maxentius had broken out into civil war, and on the 28th of October, their armies clashed at the Milvian Bridge, a crossing of the River Tiber just north of the city of Rome. Maxentius had chosen to meet Constantine in battle because a pagan prophecy had told him that on that day, an enemy of Rome would perish. The prophecy, as it turned out, was not wrong. The day before the battle, as Constantine was marching his troops toward Rome, he looked up in the sky and beheld a remarkable vision. Above the sun was a blazing cross of light, along with the Greek words, Entuto Nica, better known in Latin as In hoc signo vinces, or in English, By this sign you shall conquer. We can only imagine the thoughts racing through Constantine's mind at that moment. Unsure what to make of the vision, Constantine encamped his army that night, and laid down to get some rest before the day of battle. As he slept, he received an answer in a dream, that from now on, he should fight beneath the banner of Christ. In the morning, Constantine had his soldiers paint their shields with the Cairo, the first two letters of the Greek name Christos, Christ, 
which was already a symbol of the persecuted Christian faith. When the two armies met that day, Constantine slew Maxentius in battle and emerged victorious. There are slightly different versions of the story I've just told you, as we should always expect with ancient history, but the heart of the tale is the same, that the Battle of the Milvian Bridge in 312 marked a turning point in Constantine's life. Up until that point, he had been a fairly typical late Roman agnostic, a cynical man who was willing to worship the old gods without actually believing in them even if he had a certain fondness for Aurelian's cult of Sol Invictus. But after the battle, Constantine would move decisively in the direction of Christianity. Though he would not himself become Christian for many years to come, he would effectively rule in the name of Christianity. For the rest of his reign, as he fought with imperial rivals and defended Rome from barbarians, his symbol would be the Cairo, the standard of Christ. But far more important than his pursuit of power was what he did with it. Only a few months after the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, in February of 313, Constantine made one of the most significant decisions in world history, the decision to legalize Christianity. Barely a decade after the start of Diocletian's Great Persecution, which had tried to eradicate the Church, Christians suddenly and shockingly found themselves enjoying equality with their pagan neighbors. The Edict of Milan, as Constantine's law is known, promised to grant to Christians and to all people the free power to follow the religion of their choice, in order that all that is divine in the heavens may be favorable and propitious towards all who are placed under our authority. For the first time in history, the Christians of the Roman Empire could live without the fear of persecution. But that wasn't all, for Constantine did more than level the playing field. He favored Christianity above the old pagan religions, filling his government with Christians and taking an active interest in the affairs of the church. Most famously, he oversaw the first ecumenical council at Nicaea in the year 325, where the church, with Constantine's support, condemned the Arian heresy, the denial of Christ's full divinity, which had become a widespread problem in Christian communities. We'll talk more about the legacy of Constantine in future episodes. His favoring of the Church would leave a deep impression on Christianity in the centuries to come, both for good and for ill. I've told you his story because it's inextricably tied to the life of St. Helena, and it's high time we got back to her. As I mentioned earlier, we don't know much about what Helena was doing during the long years of her son's rise to power. What we do know is that she remained close to Constantine throughout this time, and that after his victory at the Milvian Bridge in 312, she converted to Christianity. No doubt her conversion and her continuing influence 
helped to deepen Constantine's own interest in the faith, even as he remained a pagan. In her later years, Helena also came to serve as a mirror of conscience for her son, who was often ruthless with his enemies and prone to violent fits of rage. In 326, just after the Council of Nicaea, Constantine's wife, Fausta, convinced him that his eldest son, by another woman, was conspiring against him. In his fury, the emperor had his own firstborn executed. Whatever one thinks of Constantine, there's no way around this. The killing of his own flesh and blood is undoubtedly one of the blackest marks on his record. We are told that the aged Helena came to Constantine after the deed was done, and revealed to him that the charges had been false, that his son had not been a traitor, that he had been killed for nothing. It's an unfathomably dark and haunting scene, reminiscent of the tale of Nathan and David from the second book of Samuel. You know the story I'm talking about. After David has his servant Uriah killed in battle so he can steal his wife, Bathsheba, the king is visited by the prophet Nathan, who tells him a parable about a rich man who steals a poor man's lamb, leaving the poor man to starve. David is enraged, declaring that the man who did this deserves to die. To which Nathan replies, You are the man. According to tradition, it was then that David composed the great penitential Psalm 50. Helena, in the role of the prophet Nathan, did her best to awaken her son's conscience and move him to repent of his crime. But her son was a difficult man. Flying into another storm of fury over the lies of his wife, Constantine had Fausta locked in a bath and suffocated to death by steam. It goes without saying that Helena, who had come to preach repentance and mercy, was appalled. As dark as these stories of Constantine's private life are, they do help us to understand why his mother, in the last years of her life, undertook the great work for which she is best known today. By this time, in 326, Helena was about 80 years old. But that didn't stop her from setting out on a journey a literal journey across hundreds of miles that would change the course of Christian history. Perhaps after the murder of Fausta, Helena saw that words alone would not bring Constantine to atonement, but that actions might speak louder. And so she asked to embark upon a pilgrimage to the Holy Land to search for the relics of Christ and his earliest saints. Constantine at once granted her request, 
offering her unlimited funds from the Imperial Treasury to carry out her mission. I've never seen a historian make this connection explicitly, but I have to imagine this as a kind of penance on Constantine's part. That the Emperor, seeing the gulf between his mother's selfless piety and his own terrible sins, wanted to make up for what he'd done however he could. I don't know for sure if that was the case, but I wouldn't be surprised. I'd like to share with you a first-hand account of Helena's pilgrimage to the Holy Land by the early church historian Eusebius, who knew Constantine and his family personally. The following comes from Eusebius' Life of the Blessed Emperor Constantine, written about a decade after Helena's death, and even if the writing style is a bit antiquated, it shows us a lot about the character of the imperial mother. Enjoy. For this empress, Saint Helena, having resolved to discharge the duties of pious devotion to the supreme god, and feeling it incumbent on her to render thanksgiving with prayers on behalf both of her own son, now so mighty an emperor, and of his sons, her own grandchildren, had hastened to survey this venerable land, and at the same time to visit the eastern provinces, cities, and people, with a truly imperial solicitude. As soon, then, as she had rendered due reverence to the ground which the Saviour's feet had trodden, according to the prophetic word which says, Let us worship at the place whereon his feet have stood, she immediately bequeathed the fruit of her piety to future generations. For without delay, she dedicated two churches to the god whom she adored, one at the grotto, which had been the scene of the Saviour's birth, the other on the mount of his ascension. For he who was God with us had submitted to be born even in a cave of the earth, and the place of his nativity was called Bethlehem by the Hebrews. Accordingly, the pious empress honored with rare memorials the scene of her travail who bore this heavenly child, and beautified the sacred cave with all possible splendor. The emperor himself soon after testified his reverence for the spots by princely offerings, and added to his mother's magnificence by costly presents of silver and gold and embroidered curtains. Once more, his imperial mother raised a stately structure on the Mount of Olives also, in memory of his ascent to heaven, who is the savior of mankind, erecting a sacred church or temple on the very summit of the mounts. And indeed, authentic history informs us that in a cave on this very spot, the savior imparted mysterious and secret revelations to his disciples. And here also the emperor testified his reverence for the king of kings by diverse and costly offerings. Thus did Helena Augusta, the pious mother of a pious emperor, erect these two noble and beautiful monuments of devotion, worthy of everlasting remembrance, to the honor of God her savior, and as proofs of her holy zeal. And thus did she receive from her son the countenance and aid of his imperial power. Nor was it long ere this aged lady reaped the due reward of her labors. After passing the whole period of her life, even to declining age, in the greatest prosperity, 
and exhibiting both in word and deed, abundant fruits of obedience to the divine precepts, and having enjoyed in consequence an easy and tranquil existence, with unimpaired powers of body and mind, she at length obtained from God an end befitting her pious course, and a recompense of her good deeds, even in this present life. For on the occasion of a circuit which she made of the eastern provinces, with circumstances of royal splendor, she bestowed abundant proofs of her liberality, as well upon the inhabitants of several cities collectively, as on individuals who approached her, at the same time that she scattered largesses among the soldiery with a liberal hand. But immediately abundant were the gifts she bestowed on the naked and friendless poor. To some she gave money, to others an ample supply of clothing. She liberated some from imprisonments, or from the bitter servitude of the mines. Others she delivered from unjust oppression, and others again she restored from exile to their native land. While, however, her character derived luster from such deeds as I have described, she was far from neglecting personal piety toward God. She might be seen continually frequenting his church, while at the same time she adorned the houses of prayer with splendid offerings, not overlooking the churches of the smallest cities. In short, this admirable woman was to be seen, in simple and modest attire, mingling with the crowd of worshippers, and testifying her devotion to God by a uniform course of pious conduct. That's the end of the account by Eusebius. Though obviously tinted by Constantinian propaganda, we have no good reason to doubt that Helena really did build churches, honor the poor, and recover relics in the Holy Land. It's not from Eusebius, but from other 4th century writers, most importantly St. Ambrose, that we learn about the greatest of the relics she found, the true cross upon which Christ was crucified, which she recognized by the inscription, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, just like in the Gospels. After her pilgrimage, St. Helena returned to Rome, where she would die of natural causes a few years later, around 330. There is a beautiful epilogue to her story, that when her son Constantine lay on his own deathbed seven years later, he asked for the sacrament of baptism. The emperor was finally washed of his sins and followed his mother as a Christian into the life beyond. Constantine, more than any other ruler in history, was responsible for the marriage of Christianity with Western civilization. Thanks in large parts to his tolerance and favor, Christianity would go on to become the established religion not only of the Roman Empire, but of almost every nation in Europe, down to recent times. He was a complex and difficult man, venerated as a saint by the Eastern Orthodox churches, but not by the Catholic Church, for reasons that should now be obvious. His friends and foes have called him by many different names. Soldier, general, emperor, schemer, 
murderer, saint. History would call him the Great. As for Helena, I believe she was responsible for the very best in Constantine. His genuine interest in the church, his vision of a Christian empire, and his ultimate conversion. But Helena was far more than a voice of reason and faith whispering in her son's ear. She was a great saint in her own rights, deeply devoted to her family, despite their terrible flaws, and eager to serve God however she could, even in the trials of old age. Today, she's celebrated with all manner of colorful traditions by Christians around the world, from the Filipino pageants of Santa Cruzan, held every May to recount the recovery of the True Cross, to the Ethiopian feast of Meskel, where bonfires are lit in honor of a story that Helena followed the smoke of a fire to find that great relic. St. Helena is commemorated on the 18th of August in the Catholic Church, and on the 21st of May in Eastern Orthodoxy, a feast she shares with her son, who, as I mentioned earlier, is also considered a saint in the East. Among other things, she is the patroness of converts, difficult marriages, the divorced, archaeologists, and new discoveries. As usual, if you'd like to learn more about her, I've included links to prayers and other resources in the show notes. May St. Helena, mother of Constantine the Great, discoverer of the True Cross, and Christian Empress, come to our aid, now and always, for the greater glory of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening, and God bless.